the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. The great God of heaven had kept the promises he made to Abraham, the patriarch of the faith. God had raised up a people, the children of Israel, and was working through them to bless the whole world. God had liberated the Israelites from their enslavement in Egypt, bringing them through the desert wilderness out to Mount Sinai. Here, God had given them His moral law and was in the process of providing the nation with their civil and ceremonial law. We join Pastor Will in Exodus 24, verse 7. It says here in verse 7, And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. So Moses took the blood, and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. I don't think he actually sprinkled the pillars, because in Hebrews 9.19, it says he sprinkled all the people. So your reward for saying God will do whatever you say was you got a spritz of blood. So again, it's a little gross to us, but it's because we don't understand the times back then. They would have not thought this was gross. This is a blood covenant, as Moses says. Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. The Jewish people here would be very familiar with this. We first saw a blood covenant in Genesis 15. Turn there with me real quick. We'll get a little rundown on it for a reminder. For those of you who don't remember 17 years ago when we were in Genesis 15, you know the story. God has made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be many, that he would prosper them, that the Messiah would come from him, and Abraham believed God and was accounted for him for righteousness. He said, Lord, how shall I know that you're going to do this? And the Lord said, well, I'll make a covenant with you. We'll make a blood covenant together. And so what they would do is, is they would take animals. We'll read it in a second. They would take animals. They would kill the animal, butcher the animal. One half of the animal would go on one side. The other half of the animal would go on the other side and usually do it with multiple animals. And then the two people who were making the blood covenant, they would walk through those animals together. And what they were symbolizing was, if you could put the animal back together, you can get out of your deal. And obviously you can't do that. So here we see God is making a promise that he's going to keep his word to Abraham. So verse 9, he said unto Abram, Take me a heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram took unto him all these, and he divided them in the midst. He laid each piece on the opposite of a side. The birds he didn't do that with. Now when the fowls, the carrion birds, came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him, a nightmare. And the Lord said unto Abram, in the midst of this nightmare, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they shall afflict them for 400 years. That was what Israel just came out of. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. And you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come here again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So it came to pass that when the sun was come down, Abraham wakes up, and it was dark, and he sees now. This is how the covenant is ratified. Behold, a smoking furnace goes through the animals, and then 
A burning lamp or a torch goes through the animals, passed between the pieces. And the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto your seed have I given this land. And then he gives all the boundaries of the land. Okay? That is a blood covenant. This is not something unique to Genesis. This was something that was done in that time for the most serious of covenants or deals. Okay? So, in this case, the altar represents God's part of the deal, and the people represent Israel's part of the deal. That's why half is sprinkled on the altar. God agreed to do his part. Half is sprinkled on the people. They agreed to do their part. Now, do you notice anything different between the covenant here in Exodus 24 and the one in Genesis 15? Abraham's deal is a little bit better, isn't it? God walked through the animals alone. He made the deal with himself. That means that covenant was unconditional, eternal. That is not a covenant that can ever fail. It will be fulfilled because it's, it's based on God's faithfulness and God can't fail. So that covenant was unconditional. This covenant that we're reading about right now in Exodus 24 is conditional because it's made with man. Now, what's cool about the new covenant, the one that we have in Christ, is it's like Abraham's. It's unconditional. See, the deal isn't between God and us. God doesn't say, if you do this, then you can live, and, and, and I'll keep my part. The deal is between Jesus and the Father. And can either of them fail? They can't, which means we have an unconditional commitment from him, an unconditional covenant. That's why it's a better covenant. See, like Abraham, I simply receive the promises of the deal, the promises of the covenant by faith. If you want to seek salvation by the law, like this covenant, then you have to keep all of it all the time, which no one can. This conditional deal is meant to show us our need for a better deal, so we leave this one behind. That's why when Christians get back into legalism, or even they get back to, into keeping the law, I, I, I kind of just kind of shake my head and I go, why? It's an inferior deal, you know? It's not a good deal. And I bought my car if you've done this, you know what it's like. They got like 18 deals they bring to you. And your guess is to figure out which one is their final one because then you know you take it. Otherwise, you keep pressing. When I had my car, their first payment was like $70 a month more than the payment I'm making now. And I said, that's too much. And eventually they came back with a deal that worked for me. This is God's deal with Israel is one that doesn't work for us. Not because God isn't good and not because his commandments aren't good. It's because we fail to keep it. So he gave it to us so we would understand what a standard is and we realize we can't keep it on our own and we'd look for a savior. We read about that in Hebrews 9 in our scripture reading. Turn there real quick with me. So here we have the reference to Exodus 24, this event that we're reading now in Hebrews. By the way, if you're reading the Old Testament law, it's a good thing to kind of keep Hebrews handy because Hebrews will explain how Jesus is better every step of the way of the law. Verse 19 of Hebrews 9. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats and mixed it with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying... This is the blood of New Testament. It says testament, but it's the same word, the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant which God has enjoined or commanded you with. Moreover, we haven't gotten to this part yet. He sprinkled the blood with blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, all the things the priests would use. And then the writer interjects here, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Everything was cleansed with the shedding of blood. For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Verse 23. Now we get to our covenant. It was necessary, therefore, that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these. See, the old covenant, which was just the pattern, just the model, it wasn't the real tabernacle, the real temple. They had to be purified with the blood of animals. But the heavenly things, the real things that they were just a shadow of, themselves have to be purified with better sacrifices than these. 
And here we get to Christ, verse 24. For Christ did not enter into the holy places made with hands. Jesus did not go into the earthly temple to offer his blood. It says, which are figures of the true. They're just copies of what the true temple is. See, Jesus entered into heaven himself with his own blood, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself frequently or often, as the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies every year, right? He didn't do that, but he did it once for all. For then, he says, he must have often suffered before the foundation of the world. That's the only way we could have been forgiven is if he had done this from day one. But now, once in the end of the world, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So, as it, and as it appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation see when Jesus comes back he's not coming to make an offering he's not coming to die he's coming to reign he won't ride on a donkey in peacetime he'll ride on a war horse to rule and reign our covenant is better our covenant's better. A covenant of this nature and this culture would usually be followed by a feast to celebrate the agreement. And so the leaders, in representation of the people as a whole, they all couldn't come up on the mountain, they are invited to come up to the mountain to feast with the Lord. Verse 9. Just like God commanded them in verses 1 and 2, now we see it happening. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel There was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. So the leaders go up in the mountain to celebrate with God, and they get a real treat when they get up there. It just jumps out. It says, and they saw the God of Israel, colon, which means pause. It's just like, what? We came up here to do this feast. We thought it was all symbolic and God himself is going to be here. Now, what did they see exactly? Because if, if your wheels are spinning a little bit, you're probably thinking, wait a second, the Bible says no one has seen the Father at any time. What did they see here? Well, later on in Exodus 33, I want to say it might be, no, 33, Moses asked to see God in all of his glory, right? That means he and everyone else did not see God in his glory here because he asked later on to see greater. He wants to see more. That's important because the Bible is clear that no man has seen the Father at any time except Jesus. God echoes this truth to Moses in Exodus thirty-three twenty when he says, Lord, show me your glory. And what does the Lord say to him? If I show you my glory, you won't live. No man can see my glory and live. So we know that they did not see God in all of his glory here. So what did they see? One commentator said this, we must regard it as a vision of God which rendered the divine nature discernible to the human eye. What does that mean? Well, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they all had visions of God in this way. In fact, the visions are very similar. Revelation, John saw a vision of Jesus that was very similar to these visions. I will reference that in a little bit. So what did they see? We get no description of what they saw of God, but Numbers 12, 8 gives us a clue. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it real quick. For in Numbers 12, 8, the Lord speaking to the people of Israel says this. With Moses, I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Moses, when he would see the Lord, he would see what's called a similitude. The similitude means a likeness, a representation, an image. David used this word when referencing his hope of the resurrection in Psalm 17, 15, when he said, I hope to awake in your likeness, right? So this is the same word. 
trying to tie this together, so follow me. We know from 1 John 3, 2 that our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus. If David is saying, my desire and my prayer is that I will awake in your likeness, which is the resurrection body he'll have, and the Bible says that our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus, and the likeness is what Moses saw, then is it possible that these visions are appearances of Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory? Sounds good to me. I lean toward that, and that means that he could have seen God and yet not seen the Father in all of his glory, as the Scripture says. So that's very possibly what happened. Now, what it does mention they did see was this work underneath his feet. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone. Paved work means like tiled work in contrast to brick, which was the common way you would build things. So this smooth tiled work, and it says it was of a sapphire, which is clear blue. And then Moses gives a second explanation to clarify. He says, as it were, the body of heaven in its clearness. In other words, the brightest blue sky you've ever seen is under his feet. I don't have time to go into it because we're running out of time. But Ezekiel, when he saw the vision of God, God's throne was there and he saw underneath it sapphire, the same exact thing. So what is going on here? Well, the idea, the image, is that they see God enthroned with his feet resting on the bright blue sky of some perfect place, likely heaven. And what's the significance of that? Well, it speaks of God enthroned in glory and undisturbed blessedness. Doesn't that sound good? That's where I want to be. I want to be in the place where God is reigning in undisturbed blessedness because we do not see all things under his feet now, right? That's what the Bible says. We see things now under the feet of men, under the feet of the prince of the power of the air, and it's not good. There's no clear skies. There's just rainy days. So this contrasts sharply with our lives, which are disturbed regularly by sin and are far from blessed all the time. But it also speaks of God's pleasure to have a relationship with sinful man, even if the terms are ones we can't keep. Because look at verse 11. It says, now they saw him, and they were probably afraid at first, but it mentions upon these leaders of, of the children of Israel, the nobles, he laid not his hand. God, as they saw him, didn't get them. Moses had been told by God, you can't see my glory and live. God, who knew and saw every sin these guys had committed, remained on his throne instead of reaching out in judgment. See, God is a just judge, but he doesn't want to judge us. And we see that heart here. So they saw God and they ate and they drank. Can you imagine what it was like for those guys to feast with God? They saw a vision of God, and not only did they live to talk about it, but they got to hang out with him. I don't know if there was conversation. My guess is no, at least not with the Lord per se, but we don't know. Job dreamed of this day. He dreamed of this day when his friends were accusing him of sin. You have secret, unconfessed sin, Job, and that's the reason you're in this trouble. And and basically, Job said, okay, let's say you're right. Let's say you're right. How on earth am I going to make things right with a perfect God? You're telling me to make things right with a perfect God? How does one even do that? That's why the idea of, of man's religions are so ridiculous. We'll bring him flowers and put it at his, uh, an idol. Oh, we'll bring him food. We'll bring him money, like he needs any of those things. Our attempts to try to appease God or make things right with God are like almost childlike, almost animal-like in a sense. See, that's the difference between biblical Christianity and every other religion. So the Lord doesn't tell us, make it right with me. He says, I'm going to make it right with you. He made a way where we couldn't make a way. See, Job longed. He said, I long for a daysman who could put one hand on me and one hand on God who can bring us together. See, Job longed for a mediator to go between him and God. And we have one. And it isn't Moses. (laughs) It isn't Moses. See, these guys celebrated a feast for a short time, but they never saw God like this again. But because Jesus is a better mediator, we are welcomed into the presence of God every day. That's what it says. Enter in. We read it in Hebrews 10. 
Let us come boldly. Let's enter in to the holiest of all with a heart that has a full assurance of faith because we've been washed and we've been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Well, now the meal is complete. The spiritual and civil leaders go back down the mountain. And once there, God gives Moses the next set of instructions. Verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, come up unto me in the mount and be there. I fully believe the plans for the elevator first took place at this point. Moses turned to the guys and he said, I'm going to be gone for a while. And by the time I'm back, you better have figured out how to get an elevator working. (laughs) The phrase be there means you're going to be here for a while, Moses. Now, why would he be there for a while? Well, God tells him. I'm going to give you tablets of stone, number one, and a law, number two, and commandments which I have written, number three, that you may teach them, instruct the people in them. So the reason it's going to be there so long, 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible says, God has three sets of instructions to give as to where they go from here in their relationship with God. So number one, the tablets of stone. These would be unique, written with God's own finger as a reminder of his unchanging moral law. Of course, remember Moses after that finds out the people are down there committing idolatry. Moses throws the tone tablets down. He was the only man to break all the Ten Commandments in one action. That's going to be something unique that will be special to the people. His moral law, unchanging, written in stone to show them unchanging. Secondly, he says, I'm going to give you a law. The word here means regulations, a legal prescription for how something must be done. It's our word that we're probably more familiar with if you have Jewish friends, Torah, okay? This will comprise of the ceremonial laws governing their worship of Jehovah because their way they would come and worship Jehovah would be very different than the way the pagans, especially what they experienced in Egypt, would be very different from how they worship their gods. They needed to know that. They needed to learn that. And then lastly, he says, and commandments, which I have written. These are the ones that had already been written down by Moses. God's going to give greater explanation of the civil laws. For example, it talked about don't commit sexual sin. We're going to get a whole chapter in Leviticus on what is sexual sin. So this is a thing where when we try to understand and say, what parts of the Old Testament do we keep? You know, for example, maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you've wondered that. You think, well, why is my struggle with homosexuality wrong? You know, now we're allowed to eat food that's not kosher. Why? What's the difference? You know, they're both from Leviticus. Well, one is is a moral law, and we get an explanation of how that works. The other is a ceremonial law or a civil law that does not apply to us today. So that's why we can say that. You may see it on social media, or you might hear an atheist make an argument and say, you know, Christians are hypocritical. They say, we don't have to do this anymore, but you have to do this, and it's just because they don't like you. No, not at all. (laughs) That's not at all true. Trust me, in this day and age, it'd be much easier to not preach against those things. But we do because it's truth, because it's right. It's what God says, and there's a reason why it still does apply even though it's in the Old Testament. 40 days to learn all this stuff. So verse 13, Moses rose up and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the Mount of God. So Moses goes up in the mountain, takes Joshua. His assistant is what the word minister means, his assistant or attendant. That's interesting because earlier we'd seen Joshua as the general of Israel's armies. Now he's Moses' personal assistant. Joshua goes to be available to Moses during this long stay. Verse 14, and he said unto the elders, stay you here for us until we come again to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. They're in charge. If any man has any matters to do, let him come unto them. Moses at this point had no reason to think these guys would be poor caretakers in his absence. They had performed admirably in the fight against Amalek, holding up his arms, right? They had been faithful at one point, but they're going to be unfaithful at this point. Hur drops off the scene, so he abdicates his responsibility. Aaron is left alone, and Aaron makes very poor decisions. And that just goes to show you that, you know, good men who are good leaders can make mistakes, which is why we always need to stay close to the Lord. Well, we always need to make sure that we're near to Kim because, you know, if you're a leader, you're out on the front line. You're only one step away from really blowing it. 
Aren't you glad that you don't have to stay at the bottom of the mountain like these guys? They'd had this amazing experience with God. How sad it must have been for these leaders to stay behind after spending a wonderful day feasting with God. We don't ever have to go and tarry down below while someone else goes up to hang out with God for us. Verse 15, And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And then the seventh day, he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The cloud was keeping the mountain hidden. Once Moses stepped into the cloud, neither Moses nor the mountain could be seen. And it stayed there the entire time he was there. There was a natural cloud and then God's supernatural glory that was up on that mountain. It's fascinating that Moses had to wake six days to go in there. I don't know about you, but I get impatient if God hasn't answered me in six minutes. You go up and say, okay, Lord, I'm here. What do you got for me? Silence. Probably after like two hours, not even two days, two hours, I've been like, Joshua, do you hear something? I haven't heard anything. And then definitely by the seventh day when God finally was like, hey, Moses, I'd probably be like, did I just hear that? I'm hallucinating. I'm probably, you know, I'm going stir crazy right now. Where is God? For six days, God didn't answer. And then the seventh day, he called him in. It shows us to be patient. God's timing isn't always our timing. He is going to answer and he is there. Well, he goes into the cloud to speak with the Lord, verse 17. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring or consuming fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. Very similar to the burning bush. Remember, it was burning, but not being consumed. So it looked like it was a consuming fire, but it wasn't burning the bush. This is the same word that's used here. Moses isn't consumed, but that's not how it looked to Israel. For it says, Moses went up into the midst of the cloud and he got him into the mount. And Moses was in the mount for 40 days and 40 days. Nights. And after 40 days with no word from Moses, Israel started to assume Moses had been crispy crittered because there's no sign of him. All we see is a consuming fire up there. Surely Moses could not survive. He didn't bring 40 days of food and water supplies. They hadn't seen a single sight of him. Surely he was dead. But you know what? That's why we walk by faith in God's promises and not by what we see, not by what we hear, and not by what we can reason. See, our physical senses can be deceptive at times because they convey information to us as if they have all the information necessary. That's what our senses do. I see it. That's right. That's the only thing that matters right now. And the Lord would say, but your eyes don't see what I see. Remember Elijah with his servant? And he's going, man, we're done for. The Syrian army's coming. Elijah goes, Lord, Show them that they that are with us are more than they that are with them. And the eyes of his servant was opened. He saw all along the mountains of Israel, chariots of fire and angels and just in flames. I mean, at that moment, it's like, oh, I guess we're okay. You know? But we don't see that with these eyes. We don't hear that with these ears. Our hearts don't reason that way, which is why we stand on the promises of God. God's word was for Moses to come up there for a while. And Moses had told the leaders, I'm coming back. They should have trusted that instead of their physical senses. And do you and I? There will be times when difficult circumstances seem to contradict God's promises. And our physical senses will scream to run. Stop trusting in a foolish promise. You won't make it if you trust God here. You know, the Corinthians, they thought Paul was crazy for all the suffering he went through for the gospel. But Paul's motivation came out crystal clear. The love of Christ constrains me. My God loves me so much. If he's sending me into the fire, either I'm not going to be consumed or it's my time to go, but I'm going to go into the fire. See, Moses knew he would be safe in that fire because that's where the Lord would be. Can you imagine what it was like to be sustained for 40 days and 40 nights simply by the presence of God? No hunger, no food, no need for it. The Bible, when we get to heaven, there's going to be a wedding feast, but I don't think it's going to be because we need to eat. We'll be sustained by the light of his countenance, by the light of his presence. Isn't that amazing? I look forward to that day. I definitely will be thinner.
But one last thought. You know, we celebrate a blood covenant feast with God when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's symbolic and not literal because the blood was shed once for all on the cross. We don't get sprinkled again. We learned that in Hebrews 9, once for all. But it's also not a feast because it's in anticipation of the coming feast when we receive the end of our salvation, our new bodies. In Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, it says, Behold, the bride comes, and she has prepared herself for him. And now the wedding feast will be celebrated. That's what we're waiting for. And when we take that cup, we take that cup. Jesus said in Luke 14, he said, I'll not do this again until I, I'll not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my kingdom in heaven. And so when we are with him someday, and at the wedding supper of the lamb, the marriage feast of the lamb, it'll be the same thing. It'll be a feast to celebrate the covenant that we have with him, where we just fellowship with him and we never go back down from that mountain. Amen? So next time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, remember the blood covenant that Christ has made with the Father and that we are the beneficiaries of. And I am my beloved's and he is mine. Amen? Let's all stand. Louis, thank you for your great love. Never fails, never ends. Lord, you acted when we were helpless, the Bible says. We thank you for that. And Lord, we want to stick to that better covenant. We don't want to get caught up in legalism and go back to the old way of doing things, Lord. There's something about our flesh that is attracted to that sense of accomplishment. We've, we've done A, B, and C, and therefore God's okay with us. Lord, you are longing for relationship. Help us to enter in. Remind us of the truth of your word that you say, come, come unto me. Enter in, into the joy of your Lord. Lord, we thank you that by the blood of Jesus we can. And we look forward to the day. We want to, Lord, even so come, that's our prayer, but we want to wait on you until that time to watch and pray, to be faithful servants that when you come back, you find us so doing. And then we will celebrate together. Lord, hasten the day. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Unlike the Israelites, breaking the law and commandments does not hinder us from coming before God and finding grace in our time of need. Everything that was once blocking us from God has been paid for and atoned by the precious blood of Jesus. We have a better deal than the Israelites, and one day we will see God face to face because of all that He has done for us. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, do not be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.